Hi everybody, welcome to our podcast. I'm Chelsea. I'm Alicia. And this is Camp Final Girls. Alright everybody, so today is my first episode. Round of applause. Yay! (laughs) I'm excited. I am too. It's been a long time coming. I know we've been talking about doing this podcast for a while, but I moved, had to find a new job, put my kid in school, blah blah. But I finally got it together, folks. I found a case. I wanted to do one that was from my home state, which is New Mexico, and I wanted to do something obviously true crime. This is what my first episode is true crime based in New Mexico. And another thing about this case, eh, no, I'm going to save that to the end because I want to be surprising you as I talk about it. Okay. All right. All right. So this case is the case of the Las Cruces bowling alley massacre. All right. So this case took place on Saturday or yeah, Saturday morning. (laughs) February 10th in 1990. Um, On this morning, 34-year-old Stephanie Senak, who was the bowling alley's manager, had arrived at 8 a.m. with her 12-year-old daughter, Melissa Repass, and her boyfriend's daughter. I couldn't, okay, let me just tell you, I used a couple of different sources for this case, and I couldn't figure out if the other little girl that was with her, 13-year-old Amy Hauser, was, um, Stephanie's boyfriend's daughter or just her daughter's friend it said two different things in every sources or every source that I used so I was a little confused but I'm pretty sure it was Stephanie's boyfriend's daughter all right so um and then when they were there the bowling alley's cook Ida Holguin was in the kitchen getting ready for the day knowing that at 9 a.m the youth league bowlers would arrive so at this time, while Stephanie was in the office going through the previous night's receipts, her brother, Stephen, had come by to pick up his backpack from the bowling alley. When he went up to the door, he noticed that it was unlocked, which is not normal. Um, they always lock the doors before opening time because you're not supposed to leave the doors unlocked. And so when he went in and grabbed his backpack, he made sure to stop and tell his sister hey, make sure you keep those doors locked before the bowling alley opens. And she said, okay. And he headed back outside. And when he was leaving, he actually noticed two strange men in the parking lot. But he didn't mention this to his sister, didn't like call her and tell her anything. And he just went about his day. Um, And while Stephanie just kept going through the receipts, the two girls, Amy and Melissa, started to get a little hungry they were actually going to be running the uh, daycare center at the bowling alley that day and so they stopped in the kitchen real quick to ask Ida if she could possibly feed them a snack but she wasn't done prepping the kitchen for the day so the two girls went back into the office and asked their mom or Melissa's mom for some quarters for the vending machine So on their way over to the vending machine, the two girls had actually run into the two strange men from the parking lot. They had made their way inside and the girls asked if they could help them with anything. And before they could say anything else and before they even responded, they just pulled out a gun on them and told them to go and take them to the office. Um, The younger gunman, however, went to go look around the bowling alley and see if he could find anybody else. And he found Ida in the kitchen. And so he took Ida at gunpoint into the office as well. While in the office, the gunman started just rummaging through the whole thing, um, found the safe, asked for them to let them into the safe, and they were able to get $5,000 out of it. But they weren't done searching when they found that money. They searched all over that place. They were rummaging through drawers and cabinets and yelling at the hostages, just trying to get any more information for anything else in that place. The girls didn't know though what they were looking for because they already had the money. Now, at the same time, while these hostages are in this office, 
26-year-old Stephen Turan, the bowling alley's mechanic, um, was coming into work at the same time. Unfortunately, he could not find a babysitter for his daughters that morning, so he had to bring them in with him. He brought six-year-old Paula Holguin and two-year-old Valerie Turan. So um, he went in after? Yes. That he, they were already, like... Yes. So the hostages were in the office with the gunman at the time that Stephen arrived. And when Stephen arrived at the bowling alley, he noticed that nobody was around, which was not normal. He was used to seeing Ida in the kitchen getting ready. Nobody was at the daycare to take his daughters. So he went to the office to see what's going on. And that's when he stumbled upon the horrific scene of seeing these hostages on the ground and the gunman instantly added them to their group of hostages wow so crazy yeah and it was I think it was just very intense for all of them because not only were they not expecting I mean it's a bowling alley like if you really expect a bowling alley to be hold held up like that's not normal not really a bank or a gas station but a bowling alley it just wasn't normal yeah you, you don't like it doesn't seem like they would have like a lot of money there so it's like kind of weird that you know right. they would want I mean, to rob dollars is not even that much to be honest for i mean it is kind of a lot to get out of a hold up real quick but what happens next i just don't think five thousand dollars was worth it um so once all of the now there's seven hostages total there's stephanie her daughter and her daughter melissa her friend amy ida the cook Stephen and his two daughters, Paula and Valerie. All right, so the gunmen keep going through the office. They're rummaging through everything and they have the victims kneel on their knees and put their heads on the ground. And you would when think they- after the 5,000 that they would leave. You know, that's a lot of times what happens is they'll, you know, take the money and then just run out. Like for them to stay that long is kind of weird. Well, and not only that, but these men were not masked in any way and they had run into Stephen in the parking lot um I know it's kind of confusing because Stephen the mechanic and then Stephen the brother they had the same name but the brother mm-hmm. remember he came to come get his backpack and he saw them and they went in later they weren't masked at all and so <clears throat> I think this is why they did what they did next is they put all the hostages on the ground with their heads to the ground and they shot every single one of them at least once in the head execution style oh my and God. As for two-year-old Valerie, this is the really, really sad part. Um, She was shot in the forehead. Wow. These men who came to steal $5,000 looked a two-year-old in the the face with her dark hair, her big, dark eyes, beautiful little girl, shot her right in the face. That's disgusting. Like, how can anybody, like, see a baby and just, like, be like oh let me just shoot her for some money like exactly and now I'll get into the theories and stuff about why this happened later but somebody even made a comment like oh I guess it makes sense that they would shoot him in the head because they don't want witnesses but a two-year-old's not going to be able to identify you she she's not even gonna remember half of it no that doesn't even make any sense and on their way out once they had shot everybody and they had shot some of them multiple times um on their way out they decided to set some papers that were on the desk on fire so a fire started and they ran out now um was there cameras it's the 90s really there actually weren't no and like i said i mean you don't expect a bowling alley to be held up it's not normal so maybe that's why i'm not sure Mm -hmm. but i i did so uh, when I was investigating this case, I watched a documentary on it um, called A Nightmare in Las Cruces. And it was, it was hard to watch. I watched it with my roommate, Jim, Janelle, and I, it was really heavy because they showed crime scene photos. They had the bodies in it. And they even had like pictures of two-year-old little Valerie with like uh it it was it was just a lot it it was a lot to watch but I know they did it probably because they're really trying to impact into like this is a case that we need to still think about we need to still talk about uh so anyways on to the next part um 
despite being shot an upwards of five times, 12-year-old Melissa was able to get to the phone and dial 911. How was she still alive after that? Exactly. She was shot in the head and her hands, I think she must have put her hands up to block because her ha- she was shot in the hands too. And oh, her fingers wow. were like dangling, but she called 911 and she um, said she was actually in the documentary. So she makes it out of this alive, wow. but she said in the documentary that the week before at school, she had been taught how to call 911 in case of an emergency. So she said, you know, thank God that happened. So I knew what to do. So she got on the phone and the dispatcher who took her call was Jim hash. And he just, he recalls, cause he was in the documentary too. He said, I couldn't believe that this girl was so articulate after being shot that many times, especially in the head to explain to me exactly where she was. The, she was able to give the address she even was be able to give a description of the men on the phone. Now her description, wow. she didn't really give too much, to, too much, but she basically said it was two black men that came in and shot them. And while mm-hmm. she's on the phone, she also tells um, di- the dispatcher, like, please hurry. They also set the office on fire. And she said that she, you know, was trying to keep her head down when all of this was happening because she did not want to see anything She didn't want to see the other victims, but she could hear gurgling sounds of some of them trying to breathe. That's traumatizing. Very traumatizing. And she even said that when the dispatcher asked her how many victims there were, she had to lift up her head and count the victims. And she said when she saw the little girl's body, she just quickly put her head back down because she didn't want to see any of it. Yeah. So when the first responders arrived at the scene, um, I think the phone call was made at 820. So they arrived a little bit after like 830. Um, They arrived on the scene and one of the detectives, um, she arrived and she thought it was a mock scene. She's like, I've never seen anything like this. I thought it was going to be some kind of training um, where it was very, really intense to treat us or teach us how to do what to do in those situations but when she walked into the building like I said those those bodies were there and this is the confusing part I don't know I'm a little confused about this because I guess the bodies were dragged from in the office and pulled out into the lobby of the bowling alley but what happened with the fire like did it go out of control or so Melissa when she she was still on the phone with the dispatcher when the first Um, responders arrived and she was telling him there's a fire and the dispatcher's like are you sure there's a fire do you see smoke and she's like I don't see I see the actual fire I can see the flames it's on the desk please hurry it's gonna kill us and so when the first responders arrived they immediately immediately saw the smoke and they saw the bodies on the floor and um so obviously fire was dispatched as well Um, upon arriving on scene, they realized right away that 26 year old Steven, his six year old daughter, Paula and 13 year old Amy were all pronounced dead on the scene. Um, two year old Valerie, however, was rushed to the hospital in critical condition and Melissa and Ida, the cook were still alive at that time. Um, and one of the things that really struck me when I was watching the documentary um, was that officer Bill Schatzman, I think is how you say it. He said that he was the first one to see Melissa. She was still clutching to the phone and they kept saying, get off the phone, get off the phone. And she's like, no, but the dispatcher told me to stay on the phone. And the dispatcher said, honey, if the police are telling you to go, you go with them. But I think she was just shocked and frozen in fear. And that dispatcher was her first lifeline out of that bowling alley. But that cop, Bill Schatzman, was her first contact with the outside world when this happened. So he told her to come with him. And she did. And they even said later when she was being put into the ambulance that she was calling out for him. The other officers said, oh, she's calling for you. She wants you. And so Bill got into the ambulance with her and went with her. Um, all right, it's so- crazy when traumatic things like that happen, how they like hold on to like that person who's like their savior. Yeah. And when I was watching the documentary too, I, it was made on the 10 year anniversary of this case and Amy or 
not Amy, I'm sorry, Alyssa and Bill hadn't seen each other for that long. And when they saw each other, they instantly embraced each other and just Melissa was just so thankful to Bill and Bill just was thankful to her too, because she changed his life and he changed hers forever. And they'll always have that connection. And it's, it was a very emotional, you know, interaction when they saw each other after 10 years after this case, but yeah, you're going to be connected to that person forever for sure. Yeah. Um, so when all of this was going on, um, Audrey Turan, who was, Steve's wife and mother to their girls. Um, she was at work during that day when the um, events happened. And she recalls that when she went on to her lunch break for that day, she had turned on the radio news and she heard just the tail end of it saying that there was um, shots fired at a Las Cruces bowling alley. And she said she didn't really think much of it. Um, but then one of her coworkers or students, I don't remember. She, I think she worked at the school. So one of the students, I think, told her, hey, there were shots fired. It was at the Las Cruces bowling alley where Steven works. And so Audrey was basically calling the bowling alley off the hook, trying to get a hold of anybody because she knew that Steven was there and he had her girls with him. Wow. She- Can you imagine getting like that, that news that possibly something happened to your kids or your husband. I mean, it's her whole world, you know, coming, falling down around her all at once. I I can't imagine. And especially back in the day, it was harder because literally she just kept calling the landline, the landline, because they didn't have like cell phones like we do today to be able to just like call him immediately on his cell phone. Yeah. Sorry about that. My dog was barking anyways (laughs) so let's see okay so immediately um audrey just decides she's like you know what i'm just i'm leaving i'm going to the bowling alley i need to know what's happening so she arrives to the bowling alley and sees that it's taped off there's um police everywhere detectives um the fire department and she asks police if she can go and see her family she just keeps begging please let me see my family please let me see my family and obviously they can't let her onto an active crime scene but when the detectives see her come up and she says who she is um they go up to her right away and she starts asking she's like where's steven and they say i'm sorry but he's gone she says okay well what about paula i'm sorry but she's gone did she react like that? Like she did her sis. I think her sister was with her and her sister said, I've never seen my sister. So like out of it, it was like an outer body experience. She's like, I've never seen her like that. I mean, you find out your husband's dead and you're like, okay, that's weird. Right. I think that she, no, I don't, I've never been in, I mean, I type of, well, obviously like we've never, so it's kind of hard to say how we would react, but I mean, I would probably be inconsolable or I mean, well, she I could, was maybe in, I'll say maybe, she was crying. There's I mean, maybe even, oh, okay. Well maybe in like shock and you kind of like are, don't know what to say. I mean, that's just crazy. I think she just wanted one of the facts fast <laughs> because she had been at work wondering and then she gets there and she won't, they won't let her in. So she's just like, all right, well, what about Steven? What about Paula? And then they, she asks about Valerie and they say, you need to come with us right now. And they rush her to the hospital where Valerie was at. Um, little Valerie had survived for about 45 minutes after the shooting. And she passed in a nurse's arms just before her mother got to the hospital. Oh my gosh, that sucks. Can yeah, you imagine? I can't because um, Audrey was saying, she's like, I got there and, you know, they told me that Valerie was gone too. And I just said, okay, well, this is her. She's like, okay, well, you know, was she on the table? Were you working on her or was somebody holding her? And they said, no, we knew she was about to leave. So we had her disconnected and a nurse held her until she passed. And Audrey broke down at that point. They had, um, they were Catholic. So they had a priest come in and talk to her about everything. And, um, I mean, it it was really sad watching the documentary because she's talking about this and I can, I can only imagine what that feels like, like hearing some 
strange gunmen come into the bowling alley and hold it up and shoot all three of your family members yeah, and your two-year-old oh in the God. face. Her entire family just like gone in an instant. Yes, instantly. Um, so Stephanie, the uh, bowling alley's manager, she did survive the shooting for several years. Um, however, she passed in 1999 due to complications from the shooting. Wow. Um, and like I said, both Melissa and Ida are alive today, but they are living in constant fear and sadness due to the shooting. Um, Did they ever find the people? Well, let me tell you. What <laughs> okay. next. So now we're going into the investigation of what happened after the shooting and theories of why it happened. All right. So right after um, detectives arrived on scene and they dealt with the crime scene, they canvassed the area immediately. They had two helicopters up in the air. They had blocked all exits in and out of Las Cruces with roadblocks and just making sure any suspicious people going in and out of the state or the city, they wanted to make sure that they caught it. Um, during the roadblock, they actually did pull over um, a vehicle with four male suspects in the car that had $12,000 worth of cash with them. Wow. Um, this seemed, of course, unusual to them because they knew that $5,000 was just taken from the bowling alley. So they had... Oh, wait, you said four. Wasn't there only two guys? There was, but I mean, who knows if it was like... a. Like they were like the getaway car or something. Exactly. Getaway car. And they had $12,000. So who knows if they had done it multiple times that morning. They didn't know. They just knew it was suspicious. So mm -hmm. they had Steven, the brother who had seen the suspects in the parking lot, come to identify if they were the men that he saw that morning. Um, they kept him inside of the police vehicle to not expose him. But he immediately said when he looked out the window at them that he knew that they were not those men. Um so I don't know if you remember when I was talking about the call that Melissa made to 911, but she had explained or described the men as black. Yeah. Um, Steven, the brother, he actually said that they were a very dark skinned Hispanic. Oh, okay. so, well, that can them, make sense why like she, you know, everything's clouded. Absolutely. I mean, she was shot in the head. So, yeah. And terror from everything that happened. But Steven said that uh, there were two like I said, two suspects, one was an older male, the other was a younger male. Um, the older male had a, a thick Hispanic accent and the younger male didn't. He spoke very clear English. Maybe and father, son. Maybe, or they even suspected that it could have been like uncle, nephew, whatever, something yeah. like that. Um, and I'll, I'll show you or I'll send you the pictures of the suspect suspects that you can see um they actually got a sketch off of steven's um description of them so he's the one that wasn't harmed right he was in the parking yeah. lot okay. yeah yeah he's the one that stopped by in the morning to grab his backpack okay okay alicia so i just sent you a picture of the original sketch that they came up with um with steven's description of the victim so you can see the older gentleman is you know slightly receding hairline the younger gentleman's got dark mustache just very generic i mean that could be a number of people in new mexico so they didn't have much to go off of but i don't i mean I don't, at least it's like a decent one because you're not going to find like a lot of people that look like that it's maybe a few that's like similar but you know yeah it's not, it's not too bad yeah i mean when I often see sketches of criminals and then when they finally get caught, what they look like, oftentimes they are pretty similar. And sometimes I'm like, huh, that doesn't look like them at all. How is that going to yeah. help anything? But so those are the original sketches. Um, there was a rumor and police have no clue where this rumor came from, but there was a rumor that there was a witness on a rooftop of one of the buildings surrounding the bowling alley that had actually seen the suspects running out of the alley um and they saw the younger man stashing a gun in his shirt again detectives don't know where this rumor came from but they did receive the tip and upon further investigation they found that this tip was false 
which I don't know why that happened or it's just when you would think that that kind of tip, like somebody would come forward, they wouldn't just keep quiet about that. Yeah, you would think so. But, um, what I found with this investigation is that when the news released about it, I don't know if it was because it was such a, a shock to Las Cruces because it wasn't a very violent place at the time and stuff like this just didn't happen. Um, tips came flooding in from everywhere. They would get upwards of 50 tips a day of who these suspects may be or why it happened. It was, it was a lot of information that the detectives were getting. So when this one came in, it really stuck out to them, I guess, because it was mentioned in the documentary. So I don't know. It was just something that was listed. So I thought I would mention it. Is it like a smaller town? Is that why they um, were like so concerned about all of this? Yeah. I mean, like I said, it it was the nineties crimes like this didn't really happen in Las Cruces. And also it was just such a horrific crime with children being involved and only $5,000 being found. It didn't really make sense to detectives or like why it would be to such an extent that this occurred. Yeah. Sorry. My dog keeps barking. So I'll just ignore that unless he gets out of hand. Um, Okay. So we're going to get into the theories about the owner of the bowling alley. He is a very interesting character when it comes to this case. I still have my suspicions and questions when it comes to this guy. Um, But the owner was Ron Cenac. Ron was actually Stephanie, the bowling alley's manager's father. And he was the grandfather to Melissa, the one who had made the 911 call. Um, at the time of the shooting, he was out of town visiting a friend out of, or he was out of state visiting a friend to go golfing with him, which he said was a normal occurrence for him. Um, the day of the shooting, his friend was actually sick. So he went out and golfed alone. And when he came back later that night, his friend had told him what happened at the bowling alley. So Ron immediately rushed home when he heard, um, because again, Stephanie was his daughter and Melissa was his granddaughter. So he was concerned. Um, so the reason why I think Ron is mostly looked into when it comes to this case, because again, they're not sure why a bowling alley would be held up unless there were underlying reasons, like insurance Um, fraud or something, something. So at the time, Ron was actually living at the bowling alley. How can Um, you live at the bowling alley? Do they have like a room or something? I think he was just staying in in an extra space. It didn't really explain anywhere that I saw where he was living, but he said that he had just sold his house and he was tied on money. And so he was just living at the bowling alley at the time. Well, that already sounds suspicious. It does. And it's what people claim to say, okay, well, obviously then he was the target because why would these other people be the target? Um, There were rumors that went around that he was tied to the mob owing some kind of debt was possible. Um, There was also a lot of theories that were going around because New Mexico is so close to the border that this was some type of Mexican mob um, cartel thing that happened, saying that it was very easy for members of the mob or the cartel to come up from the border, take care of him, and then go back down before Mm -hmm. they could be caught. So they thought possibly that could happen. But Detectives don't think that's possible because they had sealed off the ins and outs of Las Cruces right after this happened. Um, Ron actually had done a very extensive interview when it came to all of this, saying that he was not in any type of trouble like that. He that is not true. He said that the police that he said the police had told him that it was random and that several different similar cases were happening in cities and states around him, which was true. There was a shooting at a gas station nearby um, that was a robbery gone wrong, just like his. And he also said that, so he's like, I mean, this is common. This is happening. People are coming up here. They're shooting people and taking their money. And then Ron even said that he would go every single day to the police um, station to see if they had any updates, give information he had. He was like, I was in contact with the police constantly. I wanted to make sure this was going to get solved. But the weird part that makes me think that he's super suspicious is that the police said 
none of this was true. They never told him that his case was tied to any other case, not even that gas station shooting. And he was difficult to get into contact with this entire time. They would try calling him and reaching him and he never answered. So I don't know, maybe Ron was just not a very decent guy and he was trying to make it look like he cared way more than he did. I have no clue why he would lie and say he was in contact with a police station every day saying, I want answers. I want answers. Yeah. That's kind of an odd thing to lie about. Yeah. Why, why even say that at all? He just, to me, and I know innocent until proven guilty, you know, benefit, benefit of the doubt, but he just seemed like a very shady character to me. The entire time I was looking into this case, it just didn't make any sense to me. And yeah, just the whole thing just seems kind of odd. Well, and you know what's even crazier is less than a week after the shootings, six days later, he reopens the bowling alley. How? Wasn't there a fire and like well, it, it he did get a lot of that stuff taken care of pretty quickly. And um Ron actually was quoted saying life is for the living and he just reopened the bowling alley. I don't, like I said, he was tight on cash, you know, he said that's why he was living there, but to reopen the bowling alley when your daughter and your granddaughter and a six and two year old were shot and killed at this place. And he just reopens it right away. So his family was killed too. No, Melissa oh. and Stephanie oh, they, survived. Oh, they survived, but yes. the other family. Okay. So even so, like you had a murder there, a fire, your family was shot. It's like, how can you be so heartless to just, you know, yeah, you have a business to run, understandable, but only less than a week later, open up. Yeah. And the crazy thing to me too, is, I mean, detectives got a ton of pictures from this crime scene. There's photos abound from this thing, but I guess the police just released the crime scene to him saying it's not a crime scene anymore. And he took full liberty to just reopen the bowling alley. And this obviously was crazy to everybody who heard that this happened and it caused a media frenzy right away. People, Did anybody were, even go there? Like, Bowling? You know what? That's the weird thing is I try to find information about that because Janelle actually, when she heard this was the case I was doing, she's like, wait, I was in a bowling league and we would go to Las Cruces all the time to bowl. I wonder if it was at that bowling alley. I couldn't really figure it out if, if it reopened or whatever after that, like if people actually attended, I couldn't figure that out. Um, but when that happened, like I said, it, beca- it became such a, like a sideshow. Ron became center of attention for being questioned about everything. And he was even questioned about the fact that 13 year old Amy was in charge of running a daycare when I'm pretty sure the youngest working age is 15 with a worker's permit, but 16 is the age you need to be to work. Yeah, Ron, I was wondering about that. The kids are so young. Like, I mean, it's different to let them babysit like at home. But like at an actual business, that's kind of odd. Like they're so young. Well, and Ron denies that. He says, I never hired Amy on to take care of the daycare or any of that. But, you know, it could be one of those like family run business things where it's like, oh, well, I'm just going to let her do it. Exactly. So he denies it, but she was there that morning to do that. Her stepdad even was in the documentary, um, Amy's stepdad, and he said, you know, I just couldn't stop thinking about the fact that I had dropped her off that morning to go and do that. And she lost her life because of it. So just a side note. Um, now Ron, like I said, is very suspicious in this whole thing. And there was something else that came to light. Um, there was some rumors, which I don't know if they were ever found true or not, but there were rumors that the bowling alley was involved with narcotics such as cocaine. Well, that's not surprising. They're so close to the border. I mean, maybe that's where they're like distributing it because nobody would think, oh yeah, this is where our drug trafficking is happening. Right. I mean, that's where theories of the cartel being up there to take care of him came from. Why else would the cartel come up? But Mm -hmm. Ron's younger son, RJ, 
actually worked in the bowling alleys bar at night as a bartender. And he did have a cocaine addiction and most of his transactions from eyewitnesses took place at the bowling alley. So maybe RJ was even a target and um, maybe something had to do with drugs or money that had to, nothing was ever substantiated with these um, theories, but it was eyewitnesses saying, oh yeah, he had a cocaine addiction and we saw him do transactions here all the time. Um, yeah, RJ, but that could be just on his own and not like, you know, a business could be just, you know, well, for yeah. himself or no. his friends or whatever. Exactly. Which could still make him a target though. Anything that has to do with strong narcotics like that, maybe he but owed you said he only money. You said he only worked at night though. So wouldn't they rob it at night or go after him at night when he's there? Well, remember though, that they were, those men were looking for something else in that office. So who knows if they figured RJ was stashing some kind of narcotics somewhere in the bowling oh, alley. Yeah, that's true. That's what it could have been. RJ actually died of a drug overdose in 1997 at the age of 36 as well. Wow. So this next part is pretty crazy. Um, the tips or the tips, the cops received a tip from a lady named Irma who stated that she had harbored the shooters at our house when they were escaping from the cops. Um, she said while they were hiding, they could actually hear the helicopters above searching for them. And she stated that the money was stolen for some sort of narcotics and they had heard that there was a stash at the bowling alley. So there they are. There this lady is Irma just confirming what cops were theorizing. Who is she though to them? Well, let me, let oh, me okay. continue. Um, the issue for police with the whole Irma coming forward with her claim was that she herself was high on narcotics most of the time during her investigation and her um, confessing. And none of her claim was ever substantiated. She did pass a polygraph, though, when giving her confession um, to the police, which confused the cops because later she recanted her confession during a spout of sobriety, saying that she had made the whole thing up. Why would you? Well, I guess if you're on drugs, you can make up anything. Well, who knows? You'll see as we do more of this podcast and stuff that a lot of people, when murderers involved do they come forward and confess that it's them when it wasn't and i don't know there's obviously some kind of psychological some like mental something going on here where people just were like oh yeah it was me and then it wasn't it was ted bundy or whatever i don't know <laughs> yeah. like your 15 minutes of fame or whatever it is probably i mean that's more than likely why they would come forward out of nowhere if they're literally not involved whatsoever Exactly. It, it, this one, like I said, she, the only time that she admitted that she was lying was when she was sober. So I don't know if that says anything. Like she snapped out of it or something. Maybe, but sometimes you say you tell your truth when you are under the influence. So it could have That's been the opposite. True too. Yeah. And when she sobered up, maybe she was like, oh shit, I'm going to get in trouble. And so she was like, "Never mind, it was a lie. Who knows? Yeah. But regardless, um, Irma actually passed in 2001, also of a drug overdose at the age of 43. Okay. So at the beginning of the investigation, like I said, they would receive hundreds of tips a week. The police and investigators exhausted every lead they could and took them until they just couldn't anymore. Over time, they begin, the leads begin to slow and eventually fade to nothing. There's, there was even at one point a reward, um, of upwards to $30,000 for any tip leading to an arrest. In the following March, police released updated sketches of the two suspects. These ones were similar to the first ones, but a little bit more lifelike. And they were actually drawn up by a sketch artist named Lois, who volunteered to draw up these sketches after she heard what happened because she was just so heartbroken by the whole thing. And I'm going to send you real quick her sketches as well I think it's crazy how artists um like police artists they're not as good as like real artists you know yeah so yeah they, they should hire like real ones but pay them 
a lot of money. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing is this lady, like you could see, I just sent them to you. Yeah. They are, they're similar to the original ones, but they're way more lifelike. Mm -hmm. You could see like the flesh and the color and the shine in their skin and stuff. Yeah. So that's the best that we have in this lady, Lois. She drove literally 800 miles to come over to give these police the sketch artists or these sketches because she wanted this case to be solved as well. Oh, yeah. So and this happened in March. The case had happened in February. So this was really quick that it was already picking up steam and like the media was getting a hold of it. Unsolved Mysteries actually picked up these sketches of that this Lois did and they put it in a small uh, segment of the series finale for their um, season two, which is the quickest um, turnaround that Unsolved Mysteries had done for a case. Um, and it lasted, it, it, oh, I watched it. It was literally the last like maybe four or five minutes of their episode. So it didn't give you very much information, but it was just interesting that Unsolved Mysteries was like, let's get this out here real quick. Yeah. Um, so in January of 1991, so the following year, the bowling alley actually gets sold at auction. After Ron went bankrupt, uh, bankrupt, owing an upwards of $2 million. So he was in a lot of debt. Wow. Causes even more suspicions towards Ron at this time. Because, I mean, this man owes $2 million. That could definitely make him a target you know I don't know who else would have been a target at this bowling alley but he keeps claiming his innocence and he said that he's sick and tired of being treated like a suspect but the thing is that the police had never listed him as a suspect not he probably feels guilty because he might have did something and whether he's involved or not you know he feels guilty for something yeah I mean Nobody listed him as a suspect. The only person who's calling him a suspect is him, which makes him look like a suspect to me. Yeah. Um, so th- this is another just coincidence or not. I don't know. You decide. In March of the same year of 1991, a custodian named James Chapman was killed at the Ideal Lanes Bowling Alley in Rio Rancho, where he got shot and he died. The, what made it really weird was that this bowling alley used to be owned by Ron in 1985, which, so there's two holdups that lead to shootings and deaths in two different bowling alleys where Ron was once the owner. Granted, he wasn't the owner at the time of this shooting. I mean, I don't know if that's a coincidence or not. Like, how often do you hear of a bowling alley shooting I, I feel like that's probably just a coincidence because if he has nothing to do with it at that point then why would some random person be like oh this guy used to own it so I'm going to shoot somebody from you know there just I don't know right. but why else would they I don't even I didn't hear anything unless, about any money being taken from that place unless they, somebody from his past thought he still owned it then you know they came to collect yeah I don't know what the case is. I just thought that was a crazy coincidence when I heard about this case. Cause I was like the fact that two different businesses slash bowling alleys that this guy owned, there were shooting deaths at them. That's just weird. Um, For sure. But, but the police do admit that there's no connection. It's just weird. Um, so this case eventually becomes a cold case. The detectives literally tried everything they could to solve this from the beginning, including sources such as scientists And they even had psychics come in. So they pulled out all the stops, but nothing really happened. Um, In 1995, there was an episode of America's Most Wanted, um, which every time this case got brought up into the media again, it would cause tips to come in and the cops would, you know, follow those leads, but they let them nowhere. Um, On the 20th anniversary, a documentary was made called A Nightmare in Las Cruces by Charlie Min, which, like I said, is a documentary that I watched for this case. Um, At the premiere of the documentary, Stephen's brother, the um, mechanic who had passed, actually went to the premiere with his daughters. So they were cousins to the little girls who passed. And it was just a very sad event. And obviously, this, again, drummed up more tips coming in. 
And then last year in 2020 marked the th 30 year anniversary of those lives being lost. And they do recall the horrific events. The survivors, Melissa and Ida and the victim's family and friends want to keep this case open and in the news in hopes that it might one day get solved. Like how you were asking earlier, oh, is it normal for, you know, the little kids' names to be released? I think that in this case, especially because it is still to this day unsolved, I think they want as much information out there as possible. And they want those names and those faces just burn in your head so that hopefully, I mean, somebody out there Somebody to knows know something. something. Yeah. I mean, have you, to. Those pictures are very, dis the second sketches are distinct. Like, I'm sure that somebody has to know something because these people didn't come home with money, blood all over them, probably from, you know, gunshot wounds or, or not gunshot wounds, but, you know, the splatter from them shooting the victims. And then they're just like, Unless they were part of the cartel or, you know, something yeah. like, who knows? I mean, I mean, just... I hope that if they are out there that they have to sit there and live every single day with the fact that they shot a 13, six and two year old and killed them over $5,000. Like, I hope they live with that every day and it haunts them. And if they are dead, they're probably rotting in hell. Sorry to say it. Yeah. <laughs> but. There was but that's somebody. the thing is that they they might not even care. You hear about these serial killers that like have no remorse. They're, they they like it. I mean, so who knows if these people like even cared, you know, had any yeah. empathy or sympathy for what they did. It's just it's I don't know. It's very hard for. Well, OK, if you're taking the serial killer route or whatever, where you're saying they're unempathetic or and all that stuff. Yeah. But usually those type of people are the type to brag too. So that's why you get, you know, prison informants and stuff. <laughs> that was not me. That was a car outside. I swear. Um, you get prison informants all the time because people will confess to each other in prison or not in prison. I mean, if they are like that, I hope they're talking, oh yeah, I went and robbed a bowling alley in the nineties and I shot seven people. I don't know. But, I just hope it gets solved one day. But some people don't want to say anything because they're just, they know that people talk, you know, so, some are pretty smart. Like they know if they say something, they're going to get caught and they don't want to get caught. So they won't say anything. Yeah. I mean, that could be the case, but I don't know. I just feel like something's supposed as bound to come to light about this. Hopefully, hopefully. but you know, there's so many unsolved, like from the 70s I know that, and know? that's the thing is I don't know if how much DNA was taken because now we got the whole like genealogical DNA where you can have your cousin's brother's brother give yeah, their DNA and it'll link back to you did it say what kind of evidence they had it didn't but you know a lot of cops hold that type of stuff type of stuff close to the belt or close to the chest because if somebody does come forward as the suspect, then they don't want to say, oh, this very specific thing, because if they confess. And but I mean, say, do they have DNA? Like, do they have? At least I didn't hear anything about that, but I'm sure they collected some stuff. I didn't hear anything, like I said, about these gunmen wearing masks or gloves. Or even fingerprints. Yeah, fingerprints. I mean, yeah, it was in the 90s. So but still, there was a lot more technology than, you know, Who way knows? back when. I mean, I want to give police more credit sometimes, but a lot of the times, especially back in the day, they used to just let people trample all over crime scenes. And then they released it six days later back to run. So who knows what kind of DNA they got back. That's true. Cause I mean, you hear about like, I, I was listening to this one podcast and they were saying how, you know, these people were calling in saying, you know, this person called me and it was, you know, I know exactly what you're talking about. And the, the cops were just like, okay whatever it's probably a prank and they well, call again and it's just yeah like, but that was LA in the 60s and 70s that's a whole don't even get me started then, about the LA police department <laughs> in the 60s and 70s but even then you're just like you're a freaking cop come on like yeah. take everything seriously especially if the person's calling multiple times and they're describing things that are like hello somebody asked about it and you're just like <laughs> oh no big deal <laughs> no I get it trust me but 
LA Police Department in the 60s and 70s. We'll get into it. Okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah. But to, so to end the story, I just want to talk a little bit more about the victims because this is their story. Um, Stephen Turan, the mechanic at the time, he was actually a commander in chief at the National Guard and he had hopes to be um, get into police enforcement. He was very serious, his family and friends always said, and he had goals in his life. Um, and unfortunately, his life was cut short at the age of 26. Um, Stephanie, she, like I said, survived the shootings um, until she succumbed to her injuries in 99. But Which was what? Like what nine years the, later? No, what were the injuries that like she died from? Um, being shot. No, <laughs> I, I know, but I mean, like, oh, they just said that she died of her injuries. It didn't really oh, explain didn't much. Say, just oh, complications. Okay. I'm sure. I don't know if she was shot in like organs or the the freaking head, like they all were. I'm sure oh, that's yeah. very complicated. Um, sure. but she said her daughter said that her mom would talk about the situation all the time anytime she met somebody right away she would be like oh yeah I was shot in the 1990 Las Cruces bowling alley massacre like she it was with her it lived with her every single day until the day that she passed and yeah of course you I mean that that if you survive something like that you'd be talking about it all day long you know it's 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 I can't imagine I literally like I you know, stub my toe and I'll talk about it for two weeks. So I can't imagine being shot in the head. Yeah. I I can't imagine. Um, but Melissa and Stephanie, because of it, they became homebodies. Um, and just, they were just terrified for their lives because they, those men were still out there, you know? Yeah, exactly. You can't blame these people. Like they're, they walk out their door, they see that, you know, these people probably know that they survived. Oh yeah. So they're sure. I mean, who knows if they want to kill them because the moment those people see them, they're like, these are the people. Yeah. They can you know? identify them. Yeah. But um, look at how long it's been, you know, know so, they've, years, so they've aged. So maybe if they like, you know how they do the aged, maybe if they, yeah, yeah, they release that. Yeah. Cause if they sure. have those old photos, they, those people don't look like that anymore. Yeah. But usually when they do the age progression photos, they have actual pictures of the person not just sketches, but yeah, that's true. But, um, and then Amy Hauser, um, the one who passed away at the scene at the age of 13, her mom, um, man, it was so hard watching her mom on the documentary. She just, she was crying the whole time. And it was so sad because her, her mom was a single mom. So it was just her and her daughter against the world. And then her daughter was just gone one day. And she said, you know, her daughter was just smart she could read by the age of two and she liked to dance and sing all the time. And she just had so much life ahead of her and it was just cut short. Paula, the six-year-old, um, she liked to cheer and play. And her mom said that she just knew she had a future ahead of her as well. And she was happy and cheerful, but Valerie was so young. She was two and a half when she passed that she didn't really have time to develop a personality quite yet but she said that Valerie was very shy and quiet and serious like her father and it took her a while to open up to people and trust them which is really heartbreaking to think about how Valerie reacted in that situation I mean yeah she's already shy quiet and this thing happens and she's terrified you know but she doesn't understand what's going on but the, and the emergency responders said that she was so tough. Like she literally got shot in the face and she survived for 45 minutes. She hung on to life for that long. And then she passed. And I just, I literally think of my niece all the time when I'm thinking about this story, cause she's that age. And I'm like, I, oh my gosh, I can't imagine if that happened to her. That would be so sad. Yeah. It's just, just this whole so thing, sad. you know, just it kind of makes you realize that at any time, anything could happen. You can't stop. You can't prevent it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, um, Melissa, you know, like I said, she's still alive. She went on to get married and have children of her own. Um, but she will always be haunted forever by these events. She just remembers holding on to her mom's hand while she was making that 911 call, hearing her mom, you know, does she have any like um, health issues from getting shot? Did um, they say? 
well it's incredible incredible to me because both her and Ida survived and they're still alive today and you know Ida is um she has children and grandchildren of her own too and they both were shot in the head and it's like you could I couldn't tell I was amazed I was like these women are incredible the one thing though is that Melissa how I told you that when she was shot in the hands like her fingers were dangling her Mm -hmm. fingers are still a little crooked from it and they will they just won't heal properly so they're Mm -hmm. a little crooked and stuff and um I mean other than the trauma and stuff like that it's just I don't think so I did forget to mention though um which I don't know how I just forgot this but Valerie um when her mom had gotten to the hospital to meet her there and you know was there just too late the doctors did tell her that if Valerie had survived she would have been a quadriplegic because they had shot her through the head and it hit her spine and so her mom was saying she's like you know of course I didn't want to lose my whole family that day but she's like a part of me wonders like maybe poor little Valerie was just better off because now she could be in heaven with her dad instead of, you know, down here suffering with me. That's yeah. what she said. And, Oh, it's just heartbreaking. Like you don't want to prefer death over life for your child, but she wouldn't, she would have been a quadriplegic quadriplegic. And it probably would have been extremely painful for her mm-hmm. to be living, you know, so quality of life. Yeah. Oh, that's so sad. I can't so, even imagine. That's just, horrific or horrible 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 case that is like I said still unsolved so I hate is, that I hate when I hear cases that are unsolved it's like oh yeah that's I like me wish. watching stupid unsolved mysteries and then being mad at the end when it's unsolved and I'm like oh yeah I'm watching unsolved mysteries that's why I like <laughs> cold case files because they always you know find the killer yeah but these unsolved cases are important for us to keep going don't let their story die ever until hopefully one day they do get solved i mean i think of the freaking um golden state killer just got charged last year and he murdered so many people in the 70s like that case is just so crazy and now he's on death row or is he still alive i don't know on death row at the age of like he's in his 70s like it got solved so i with these unsolved cases will never ever stop hoping and wanting for them. Um, so if you're listening to this and you do know anything or you have any information, you can always call Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477, or you can go online to NM, that's for New Mexico, crimestoppers.org. Again, these cases are very important to talk about the unsolved ones all of them are victim stories should always be told, but I just really hope for the family and the victims that one day, maybe this will get solved. You never know. Yeah. Well, that is the end of my story. So thank you for listening. I know it was pretty dark for the first episode involving children and it's really hard to talk about that kind of stuff. But like I said, I think it's important next week. I, We'll probably do an episode. I don't know if Alicia is going to, but the next episode that I do is going to be a lot lighter. It's going to be a paranormal cryptid case. So hopefully lighten the mood a little bit. And yeah, that's all I have for you. Well, thank you for telling the story. I mean, I'm glad that you're bringing it to light again because it's important. Yes, it is. And I hope that I did a good job because I was so nervous for my first episode to be able to get all the details out there and not just ramble and sound like a lunatic. So, you know, it's also that. Yeah. <laughs> well, was I a sure. lunatic? Tell the truth. I mean, you're always a lunatic. So that's true. <laughs> Dang it, I just can't ever win. No, but you know, it's, it's good. It was a good story and it sucks that it's true, you know? that oh, yeah. they, things like some of the stories you hear, you're just like, how is this real life? Yeah. And it happened in my neck of the woods too. Well, crazy. the one that I'm hoping to tell happened in my area. So I know, well, I hope, you're in LA. So a lot of cases happen. True. There. But where, where I'm from, not, well, I mean, who knows there might be that I don't know about, but mm. Dun, yeah. dun. but I mean I'm hoping I find enough information you know because I 
it's still unsolved. So, yeah, uh, it is hard to find cases like that where you're just like, don't but that's, know. that's the kind that I, I like to hear, you know, because it's like, it brings it to light and you want it to be out there and be current so people can hear about it and be like, oh, well, let me share this. And hopefully somebody knows something. Mm-hmm. That's true. That's true. Well, I can't wait to hear it. Well, I can't wait to tell it. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we've talked enough. So I love you, Alicia. I love and you. I miss you. Miss you. <laughs>